9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in rainy, cold, horrible New York City. We are joined today by a great group from different parts of the country up north of us, uh, I think uh, we will find uh, Juliet Kayyem, who is the faculty chair of the Homeland mm-hmm. Security uh, Department at the Harvard Kennedy School and former assistant secretary of uh, Homeland Security in the U.S. government. Juliet, are you in the Boston area? I am in the Boston area, and we don't have rain, so we're lucking out over here compared to you. Yeah, it's uh, always beautiful, balmy. The weather's fantastic in Boston. Um, and uh, <laughs> in Washington, in the Washington, D.C. area, of course, we've got uh, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David. We are also in disgusting, rainy Washington. But then again, it's the swamp. <laughs> it's supposed to be raining. Um, yeah, exactly. We're lucky it's not like, I don't know, plague of frogs or something. Um, so... <laughs> let's 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 move away. You know, it's kind of you know great to wake up. It's a Monday morning. We begin the week. There's no impeachment to talk about. There's no, you know, we could sort of take a deep breath and look at the world as we once looked at the world, and and <laughs> and and that's it's a little disturbing. There's a lot of things out there that were on our our minds once upon a time that we haven't talked about perhaps enough. Uh, and so you know, one of the things I thought we could talk about today is sort of threats to the homeland in 2020. Um, and I'll start with some breaking news. And David, maybe you can get into this a little bit. But the United States named uh, four members of the Chinese PLA in this Equifax hack in 2017, which I think they stole something like 145 million identities or something to that effect. Um, although... I saw some wag on the internet saying Equifax is the one that stole the identities and the Chinese just took them without paying for it. Um, (laughs) That seems, that seems very fair. Uh, But uh, tell us, tell us about that and and why that might be significant. Well, it's significant for a couple of reasons, David. First, when Equifax first happened, we assumed wrongly as it turned out, if you believe the indictment today, that this was probably a private hack because in other words, a criminal hack, because the Equifax data, which of course is your social security numbers, other personal identifying information, your credit card data, is all incredibly valuable on the dark web. And then we began to discover that none of this data was showing up on the dark web, which made you begin to think that it might have been part of a different, in some ways, more sinister kind of hack, which is what the Chinese had going starting in about 2014, 2015, during the hack of the Office of Personnel Management and surrounding attacks. And the way you have to think about the Equifax attack is not as a one-off event, but rather as part of a constellation of attacks. At the center of it was Mm -hmm. OPM, the most boring bureaucracy in Washington, which is saying a lot, 
which uh, lost to the Chinese uh, about 22 million security files. And these are everything that you would put on a very lengthy set of forms if you were getting a security clearance. And both um, Rosa uh, uh, and Juliet can describe these with um, greater uh, care than I can, because, of course, I would never be trusted with a security clearance and couldn't have one <laughs> as a New York Times reporter anyway. But basically, <laughs> these forms require you to put down not just your social security number and birth date, but the names of every foreigner you've ever met, every mm -hmm. relationship you've ever been in, your health records, your kids' records, and so forth. With that core, the Chinese had a database to figure out who was working with whom on a variety of things in the U.S. government, apply big data to it. But it wasn't the only theft. There was the Anthem health insurance data, which would then enable you to figure mm -hmm. out whether those people had health issues that could become uh, useful to be exploited by the, by the Chinese intelligence agencies. There was Equifax, which of course would give you their financial history and tell you who might be more susceptible to bribery or blackmail. Uh, there was the, um, what we now call the Marriott hack, but was actually the Starwood Hotel database, which would begin to tell you who moved around the country with whom. These are all useful by themselves, Together, they create an incredible picture of the American security elite. Um, yeah, and so the Chinese are hard at work at this. This is obviously a big project for them. We saw this was, uh, you know, the case with the Russians with the 2016 hack. And, and, and Juliet, I, I was wondering if you could sort of play these things yeah. <laughs> in, in, in conjunction with another story, which is unrelated to it in a way, but not in another way, and that is the technological screw-ups that surrounded the Iowa caucuses. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, those were technological screw-ups, it seems. Um, but it shows that there is a certain degree of vulnerability, and, and yet there are governments out there that are applying great efforts at very complex tasks. Right. And, you know, while a hacker, you know, a sophisticated guy like David Singer would sit there and say, well, you know, this thing that happened in, you know, Iowa, that's not really a hack. You know, that's a that was just a technological scope. That's like saying to somebody no, I who's would on call a, it rampant incompetence. David. OK, rampant incompetence. I think the rampant incompetence just tying the two stories, I think, because um, I think about it from the defensive side, because the Homeland Security, I mean, I, you know, I'm not ready. And they had to pay a pretty price to, you know, to get Equifax off the hook. Um or at least, you know, to view them in anything but, you know, a co-conspirator in some ways. If you if you look at these major hacks, whether it was Target, Sony, and now it looks like with with uh, Equifax, um, there's what we call, you know, I build systems of security. So as I said, I'm on defense. There are there's a what we try to avoid is um, what we call the single point of failure, right? That's why we talk about layer defenses. That's why we with layered security. You know, whether you're going into an airplane, you've got, you know. 10 different touch points at various moments that are getting your security. So Sony, a single uh, a single system administrator and their login, it appears, but at least in the public accounting, while China was very, very smart in terms of scrubbing their footprint, this was not sophisticated. This was more like Podesta, right? He just opens up a link that it really was login credentials. So I just say this, that that's how the Chinese originally got in. They were very sophisticated in erasing their presence. 
Um, so this is where I do get a little bit on my high horse. Why, you know, why these major, first of all, you know, why these major corporations with lots and lots of data are still so bad um, at something that is sort of their core, core vulnerability. And part of it is because they're not regulated on this stuff. Part of it is, you know, they factor in potential fines, although this is a big deal for Equifax. So I think that does get to Iowa in terms of um, the the process. Once again, I blame um, I blame the client as much as the as anyone. I mean, in my mind, this is Iowa, uh, the Democratic Party's fault. I, you know, you pay eighty thousand or sixty thousand for an app, um, you're and you don't test it, you don't deploy it, you don't scale it, you don't ask the users, the the precinct heads, what they think about it. You have a different login system for the day of as compared to testing. I mean, everything you know that that. Um, that people like me who, you know, think about the deployment of technology, mostly in the security space, everything that you're not supposed to do is done. And, um, and so, you know, from the defensive, you know, people say, what, what can we learn about Iowa uh, or even, you know, Equifax? It's like, I'm not sure there's anything to learn. Like, we already know this, right? You don't do it, right? And so that's sort of where I link the two well, stories. Well, yeah, we, you don't do it. But, you know, Rosa, there's another story that's out there today which was that the Israelis, uh, the, the, the Netanyahu's party. Uh, was, <laughs> yes, the Likud party. Let's be very clear about that. <laughs> right. They, they had an app. Um, these election apps, by the way, seem to be uh, just all fun and games, uh, the, uh, via which they accidentally leaked the data of six and a half million Israeli voters, which, by the way, is every Israeli voter. They leaked I mean, this this app resulted in every single piece of d data being released. Um, and so, you know, <clears throat> you can imagine the potential mayhem that might invite. Um, and and, you know, the election is rolling closer and closer. And our government is actually, you know, not leaning into this. It's leaning away from it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I, I think there are several thoughts that are swirling around in my mind listening to Juliet, listening to David. Um, one of which is and this this is where sort of Iowa and Equifax sort of converge, you know, that that it's 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 easier to write foolproof code than it is to make human users behave in a foolproof fashion. Uh, and and writing foolproof code is really hard, too. You know, but but in some ways, we humans are the the weak link in the chain. Very often, you know, that we we fall prey to phishing scams. We leave our passwords, you know, taped to the bottom of our keyboards. We do all the things that we do know perfectly well we shouldn't do. And my guess is that probably all of us on this call do at least one thing that we know perfectly well that we really shouldn't do yeah. because we're lazy, because we're sloppy, because we think the you know we're playing the odds, et cetera. Um, and that's almost impossible to change. Um, and the, the, the thought that is connected with this, well, two, two thoughts connected with this, you know, one is that I wonder whether we aren't going to be heading in some ways into a more low tech future, you know, where we start going back to saying, okay, we need paper records of all voting. You know, we're going to have to have paper records and we've gotten we've gotten very addicted to the convenience of doing everything online. And of course, that's why we're sloppy. You know, that's why we write our passwords on the bottom of stuff, because we you know, we can't be troubled to take the extra time. But the price that we're paying for 
convenience and sloppiness is greater vulnerability. It was not that long ago, you know, it's within the living memory of everybody on this call that most of these kinds of records were maintained in paper form primarily rather than in computer form. Uh, and that transactions just took longer and they were less convenient. And we may, whether we like it or not, we may end up having to revert back to that uh, simply because the electronic systems combined with our human capacity for error are so vulnerable. And it's not that the Chinese, if they had wanted to circa 1976 or something like that, could not have found ways to gain access to much of this information. It just would have been a lot slower and a lot more resource intense, intensive for them. The very same reasons that it's slower and more resource intensive to do things, the old fashioned low tech way for us makes it slower and more resource intensive for adversaries to gain access to that. And the, the, the third thought, which, which sort of departing from this, um, is specifically about elections. You know, one of the things that I, I think we we need to start saying to ourselves and to our you know our fellow Americans is do not expect that election results are going to come in two hours after the polls close. Um, mm -hmm. That's a terrible mistake, and because very often they won't, and the time it will take to check and double check and triple check everything, uh, especially in this era of of cyber vulnerability. Um, is going to be significant. And the more you demand instant results, the more vulnerable our systems will be to, wh whether it's to, to simple incompetent human error or to malicious external interference. And I think we have to get used to the idea that it's going to take some time. You know, each election, when you have a country with 325 million people, you know, even though only half of the eligible voters actually vote, that's, a, it, you know, a tremendously complex system, even in Iowa, where we're talking about a tiny, tiny fraction of that, as we mm -hmm. saw, you know, getting it all right is actually hard, you know, and, and, and even aside from even aside from incompetence, it's just hard. It's just complicated. You know, there are a lot of moving parts that have to all come together at once. And I think we need to start adjusting our expectations. And, and, and that is part of the way to avoid having you know, there are conspiracies sometimes, but equally, there are conspiracy yeah. theories that are completely fake. And I think we saw in the aftermath of the Iowa caucuses, a lot of conspiracy theories floating around that, as far as we know, have no justification, but were deployed for political purposes. But people start mm -hmm. believing them when they start when they have this expectation that two hours later, you're supposed to know the answer. And so if they don't, they think, aha, it's the Russians. Aha, it's the white nationalists. Aha, it's the whoever's, you know, somebody has hacked this. And sometimes they have, but often they haven't. So, so that's, a, I think, an adjustment that we're all going to have to make psychologically. Hey, David, you know, can I mention something that I think ties together um, a couple of these? So the OPM information, uh, the, the security uh, files, including, you know, the ones on uh, Rosa and Juliet, which were especially good reading, I want you to know, um, were, all, um, <laughs> were, were all unencrypted. It's hard to believe that you would collect information mm -hmm. of this sensitivity and store it as OPM did in the Interior Department's computer systems where they get the same protections that, say, bison migration in uh, Yellowstone Park get mm. and leave it unencrypted. Um, the Equifax stuff was a little bit better, but in both the case of Equifax, we read from the indictment, and in the case of the um, OPM hack, the Chinese encrypted their own data so that it would not, not be clear to anybody looking inside the network who was there. And what do we have happening elsewhere in the government? 
Attorney General Barr and others in the administration protesting fully encrypted technologies because law enforcement has a hard time getting into them, which is a real, real problem. But the fact of the matter is that if we don't routinely encrypt this kind of data by default, the Chinese are going to continue doing this and not just the Chinese. Well, you know, it, it brings up a, a thought, Juliet. One is, or several thoughts. Mm -hmm. One is um, that the, the the success of of hacks like the Russian hack um, mm -hmm. is actually augmented by the success of every subsequent hack and every mistake, for the reason that Rosa mentioned, yeah. which is the conspiracy theories start coming out earlier. Right. People distrust the systems. And when you've got that, and then you combine that with shutting down the cyber operations at the NSC, the Senate not, you know, funding uh, key election uh, protection and that kind of thing, yep. it's it, it's just it's just opening the door to doubting the system, which right plays into the hands of the Russians, plays into the hands perhaps of Trump, um, uh, but but of oh, course absolutely. Go ahead. Really yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, uh, the I am so angry at the DNC right now because because what I thought was also good faith attempts. I, th I think they were the DNC and others had spent a lot of time with uh, parties and candidates and and state uh, uh, secretaries of state's offices and others sort of preparing everyone so that there could be uh, this trust built into a system that is inherently vulnerable, right? You've got so many people voting, just what Rosa was describing, on a single day. You've got systems, you know, sort of from a security perspective, it's like the worst kind of system because it gets built up on a day and it gets, you know, drawn down on that day. Um, you've got a president who's not only disinterested, one could say it's not helping, um, uh, uh, the same sort of behavior by the Russians in 2016, certainly doesn't believe what uh, they did, and who is definitely greasing the runway for questions about 2020, what, what those will look like, we don't know, but you know, it's definitely already creeping that in. That's, that, is, um, that has been um, aided and abetted by the DNC and their sort of last attitude, as we're learning from great reporting from the New York Times and others, their very lax attitude about security with the state Democratic Party, so um, which has now fed into the Bernie versus the Bidens, and this was meant to hurt Bernie and whatever you're seeing online. So, you know, why the DNC yeah. doesn't have a heavier hand on security? Security, which seems to me to be what a headquarters is for. I get that, but but you know, you, the DNC ought to have set a floor. And that floor should begin with the first sentence, which is you shall deploy no new technology on the day of, right? I mean, it's like so ridiculous when I say it, I get sort of livid. So the, so the DNC has aided this now. So now we're in a position where we're sort of as Democrats, or at least, you know, some of us on the phone, you know, are, uh, you know, we sort of aided and abetted that theories that Trump's going to run with that then go to um, um, the 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 what's going to happen in 2020, and you know, I just want to add one more thing to David and others' great reporting um, on sort of leading up to 2020 because I I deal with this on the state and local issue. The one thing that we ought to also be cognizant of, and you're starting to see the IC um, uh, the the intelligence community and some of their public documents uh, focus on this, 
is not a direct hit from China, Russia, whoever, and they're going to continue to do their Facebook and their fake news stuff. We get that. Um, is not trying to get into the systems, but to do what we would call the sort of, you know, atmospherics of voting or the peripheral of voting, which is, so here's the scenario, right? Which is, okay, so I'm Russia. I want Trump to win. I'm worried only about 20,000, 30,000 votes in Michigan. How do I suppress 30,000 African-American votes in Detroit on the day of? Um, okay, here's one way. I'm not going to go after the election system. I'm going to go after the electrical grid, or I'm going to go after... Um, the reverse, one of our concerns is reverse 911, right? So that a message would go out that there's an active shooter in downtown Detroit so people don't go out. I'm going to mess with, uh, you know, uh, signals and uh, a signal deployment so that, so that the act of voting gets interrupted because we make it so gosh darn hard in this country by not putting it on weekends or giving people days off. Um, and so that's just something that we're thinking about now, that it won't look the same as it did in 2016, but that the critical infrastructure and all that stuff that supports essentially the movement of people from point A to the voting booth will get disrupted. And you're starting to see the intelligence community um, uh, in some of the reports start to say not just we're worried about the election apparatus, but the structures that support the election apparatus. Not to scare everyone, but that's sort of, you know, if I'm Russia, that's how I'm doing it now. No, no, that's the thing. You don't need to do the big complicated hack, although they seem to be yeah. trying to do the big complicated hack. And, and you know, so Rosa, one of the questions that comes to mind when you think about, say, what happened in Iowa is around, you know, as, as we sort of started drifting into that long caucus night, you would start hearing stories like, uh, well, you know, or, or around the Iowa caucuses, it wasn't that night, you know, there were people saying, well, this poll, the, it was the Des Moines Register poll, sorry, but the Des Moines Register poll said, you know, one person said they weren't asked a question about one candidate, and so the whole poll was thrown into question. And, you know, with Twitter and, and, and social media the way it is, right, right. people can say, well, you know, um, I tried to register my vote and I was turned away or there were long, long you know, you don't you don't have to do a lot of fancy stuff to all of a sudden have people seize on this stuff. And it's, you know, sort of become social media fodder and 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 people start doubting the whole shebang. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think that one of the dirty secrets of electoral systems and democracy in general is that, you know, it, it's never been perfect. There have always been all kinds of errors and distortions, um, uh, some introduced inadvertently, some of them introduced deliberately. We have this illusion that we have this illusion that we have some system that accurately captures the will of the voters, as it were, you know, and in fact, we have never had such a system. I, you know, I could we say that there is more voter suppression and more mistakes and errors made now than there were 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago? I doubt it. I think the difference is now that because of things like social media, we are we are far more aware of them and that because of changing norms about equality and participation, we care more about it. You know, that, that, that we, we or some of us care more about it, I'll, I'll, I'll change that, um, you know, that, that we no longer think, oh, so fine, you know, as, as clearly a substantial percentage of Americans did 50 years ago, oh, so fine, a high percentage of African Americans uh, don't vote in part because we've made it really, really hard for them. You know, today, 
a I, I hope I hope and trust a large majority of Americans at least feels like no that's not okay that's not accept that's not acceptable at all you know so so part of what has happened is that we we have these expectations that even a very well run system cannot hope to match and in fact it is not a very well run system it's a it's a system that mm-hmm. is extremely decentralized. Um, you know, extremely inconsistent, not only as, and we, I, we found this out, I think the first big shock where many of us realized this was after the disputed elections in 2000. You know, it, it's not just that Florida does things differently from New York, it's that every precinct in Florida has their own method. Um, and and the, the possibilities, you know, I, I think the best you can say about any American election um, is that it probably gets within, you know, some margin of error of the actual expressed preferences of people who turned up to vote, you know, um, but there's still probably a margin of error just because of just simple mistakes. Um, and, and you know, when you throw in active voter suppression efforts, um, including by causing, you know, causing confusion, you know, sending people emails that say that their polling place is closed and they should go somewhere else and they don't, you know, et cetera, et cetera, who knows? Um, you know, that we're getting further and further away from being able to say with any confidence that the results do, in in fact, reflect, you know, the will of the people. And I, you know, Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, this was very clear even after the 2000 election, when concerns about cyber attacks were much slimmer. Um, um, You know, if you, if you sent a bunch of international election experts to the United States, uh, hmm. Nobody was going to say, "Oh, you guys have a really great system. You're a real model for the rest of the world to emulate." That we're certainly better than plenty, but we're a whole lot worse than plenty of others, and and that's that's a dilemma in and of itself. Hey, Rosa, this, it's uh, David, and everything you say is absolutely right. But we should also remember that the huge diversity in our voting system from state to state and sometimes county to county is also a form of protection. That's true, too. Voting, no, that's, that's true, too. Right. The most vulnerable systems are one where mm-hmm. the whole country votes the same way, which yeah. is true in yeah. Europe, which means you can design one set of code to attack everything. Whereas one of the things that actually gave relief to the Obama administration as they were investigating the Russians in 2016, mm-hmm. and this is clear in the report that the Senate Intelligence Committee released last week, is it because every state was different? <laughs> they were thwarted just... by the chaos and incompetence. That's right. Our <laughs> chaos and incompetence can be great protection. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's also a reason that our air traffic control system is relatively safe because, you know, we're still using such outdated <laughs> equipment. Well, but that, I mean, but that I think goes back to the earlier point of sort of changing what our baseline set of expectations are. Uh, yeah sort of accepting on some level that this is going to be a messy, messy and imperfect process, and then thinking about which kinds of messiness and imperfections and distortions are the ones that we should really care about, as opposed to which kinds we, we really have to tolerate and maybe even have some advantages. So let me, let me switch the subject here. And David, I know you've got to go. Um, so maybe you chime in on this one for a minute and then you can go. Um, but, you know, in past elections during the 21st century, we would spend a lot of our time talking about terrorist threats against the United States in an election year mm-hmm. or how that could disrupt an election. Now, interestingly, with the impeachment saga going on, we had on the rebound in a big way, including yeah. Jim Jeffries, the respected uh, 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 you know, overseer of this uh, Syria policy for, for the Trump administration saying it. 
Uh, and so as we look forward between now and 2020 beyond cyber, are there threats like terror threats that you think we are underestimating? And then I'll go to Juliet after David. Well, you know, on the um, on the terror threat side, um, this is more Juliet's territory than my own. The big risk is something that happens at the very end of an election that can change public yeah. perception. So the classic example of this was the 2004 reelect of President Bush, which was aided in part by a threatening letter from Osama bin Laden that sort of changed the news cycle from a story we had broken earlier that week about the incompetence of the rush to Baghdad, where they had left huge amounts of ammunition in a, in a uh, depot that they, they sort of saw and cruised by. And then, of course, all of it was shot back at our troops. And Vice President Cheney was denying this and so forth. It was all a big news story until the moment of that threat. It would not be hard mm -hmm. for the Russians to come up with a sort of last minute statement. It wouldn't be hard for a crisis to be mm -hmm. manufactured. And all those kinds of things make voters cautious about changing horses. Juliet, so, so, so <laughs> talk, 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 talk a little bit about this threat, which, you know, I've spent most of the past 20 years mm -hmm. saying that we have overstated terror threats relative to other big threats. Mm -hmm. uh, and I now feel we're coming to that point where we are ignoring them uh, or underplaying them to our peril. But perhaps you disagree. You know, it's just it's just the nature of the terror threat right now. So I think I think it's um, it's true. Uh, it is not at the forefront. Some of that is the successes of the campaign against ISIS, although, as you were noting and David was noting, you know, things seem to be unfolding sort of against us. But whether they have the capacity, I, I do this from the homeland perspective, whether they have the capacity to actually do something here seems not likely. Whether they can inspire someone, that's always a potential. And but, you know, I don't mean to sound crass about that kind of attack. Those are those are manageable disruptions in a in a country like ours, a, a what we call the lone wolf. And of course, as FBI Director Ray, you know, testified just last week, the the terror threat we should be worried about, with no question in my mind, is obviously you know the right wing and and white nationalism, which is feeding off of each other on these you know platforms like Facebook. It's this sense of displacement that is then you know, sort of utilized by Trump and others that's called stochastic terrorism. It's a way of, 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 uh, of uh, galvanizing and radicalizing people with sort of plausible deniability so that Trump's people can say, what do you mean that we're responsible for the rise in Nazism? You know, as if that's not exactly sort of the undercurrents of what's going on. Um, I, you know, and then I, you know, but, but if you ask me what's the existential threat, I mean, we have a long-term one, obviously, which is climate change and the way we live and the way we think about how we live and whether we should live that way. So you think of places like paradise, why the heck the federal government is paying for people to move back there seems, uh, uh, short-lived politics and long-term, uh, you know, long-term security flaw. And then we're talking right now, you know, in the midst of a, uh, a potentially global health epidemic. We are talking on, you know, Monday the 10th, and um, we're, we're not seeing the numbers globally that you might otherwise see because uh, everyone's paying attention. So you would expect numbers to be higher. Um, all the fatalities, but one or two are in China. It's a disaster and a, and a crisis and a tragedy for China 
Uh, but we may be in a place where there is sufficient containment that we're holding off uh, a global pandemic, uh, but people are disagreeing with this and we're following the science and uh, and the United States is not prepared for it. We've, we've, we've minimized the Homeland Security role in the White House. I, I, could, I, as, I could literally not tell you who the Homeland Security Advisor is at this moment. I sort of know, but I'm not sure he's still in the job. You know, he's been demoted. He used to be <laughs> it's hard to you know, keep people track. like Lisa Monaco. And yeah, I mean, but people like Lisa Monaco and Fran Townsend and John Brennan used to have that job. These are names that people, the American public was familiar with. Um, they've, they've gutted the, the pandemic office, preparedness office no longer exists at the at the White House, we've got a task force, which, you know, from the perspective of operations for someone like me is a freaking disaster. I, we, we need an incident commander. We need a czar, someone in charge. Um, so there's a lot of things that make me worried from the preparedness side in the U.S. I'm not at crisis. I'm not at emergency yet. I'm cautiously worried um, or I'm worried with caution and uh, and looking at what's happening in China Um this really bad, but I, I have to say this weekend, I sort of, you know, you know, famous last words, but I started looking at the numbers and you're like, you know, China has a big problem, but, you know, so long as you don't go on a cruise, um, you know, you seem to be, you know, relatively okay, but we just don't know right now. Yeah, so long as you're not trapped in Wuhan, not able to leave your apartment building. Yeah. Um, uh, or or other other places uh, suffering that kind of a fate. Uh, so, Rosa, just a kind of a last word as 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 you look at this, and we look forward to 2020. One of the things that uh, Juliet just mentioned was this march. Uh, well, was talking about the the rise of the the hard right and the threat posed by the hard right, and of course, most of the big terror attacks that we've recently seen have come from the hard right. Uh, and on the heels of the president's acquittal. I think not coincidentally, a group group of masked white nationalists marched in Washington a couple of days ago, and um, and it was incredibly chilling um, because you, you have to throw that as a big piece into this mix that there is an inflamed portion of our populace that the president kind of embraces as a tool. And and is and is and is clearly among the greatest threats that we face. So, what do you think on that? And 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 have we missed something in this outlook? Oh, that's hard to know. I mean, I think what we what we don't know at the moment, or at least I don't know, and Juliet may have a better handle on this, is whether there is any degree, and if so, what degree of sort of active coordination between people directly linked to uh, President Trump and these groups, or David may know. David, are you still there? Yeah, um, one one um, David is, but not the one that you wanted to one, talk not to. The other so, one, not that. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and and I think I think obviously best case, right? We have a president whose rhetoric has been empowering to these groups, um, but who is not actively in any way coordinating with them using any of the powers he has as president to do so. Worst case, there there is some degree of coordination and encouragement. Um, it's pretty scary. I, I, I do think it's pretty scary. I find, mm -hmm. you know, all the various measures of likelihood of 
political violence and civil con conflict uh, that that have been developed uh, primarily outside of the context of the United States. Um, on all of the standard measures now used, we are getting sort of higher and higher in terms of early warning signs for for serious conflict in the future. And I, I, I don't know what more to say to it other than that, but I'm curious to know, Juliet, if you have a sense of this. So, I mean, when you talk about the the rise of it, you know, uh, of, of what's going on, and it, it, it predates, obviously, Trump, there's three, you know, th three elements to what we're seeing now. So one is this, you know, theory of displacement. Um, so this is, you know, in, in, in the last six or seven years, just by, you know, the data we know uh, uh, of U.S. citizens, more non-white babies are being born than white babies as of six years ago, basically. That has been picked up by the white supremacists as true displacement. And it is true. And it's good. Right. I mean, it's a, the, the, the facts are true that we are we are now heading towards you know, majority non-white country just by pure demographics. And that doesn't include immigration. So their whole theory is not, I hate to say this, and I don't mean it to, I mean, I don't, I, you know, what we're seeing now is the existence of the African-American family next door means I can't exist here. So that leads to violence. They then perpetuate all this hatred online and Facebook and 4chan. As I said, they, you know, and, and, and so I've gotten, even though I think I used it earlier, I don't like the term lone wolf anymore in terms of radicalization. I don't think that's true anymore. I mean, I think these actually, in the same way the KKK got together in churches, just consider Facebook their church, right? They are feeding off each other. And then, and then they are nurtured. And that is where I'm pretty direct that, that you know, I may not have a direct line that Donald Trump calls you know, right wing 101, you know, 1 800, you know, right wing crazies. But, um, um, but uh, the, the, the form of radicalization he is using, whether he calls it this or not, the stochastic terrorism I was talking about is, is a wink and a nod. And that's all they need. And, and I've come to describe it as they are no longer shamed at the top. There's no shaming. So most presidents would shame it. Some might wink, some might, you know, not condemn it enough. But no president president has legitimized it in our lifetime um, in in the same way, and so that's sort of what the breeding ground is. So I do view uh, President Trump not as responsible for a certain death or a certain whatever, but I the mix was is created by him, um, and the and the failure to shame means that, for example, these guys are walking around. That's the amazing thing about these rallies now. It's like, I, I keep thinking, like, do they not know we're taking pictures of them? And, you know, but, but because they don't perceive it as shameful anymore. They can be Nazis. They can be racist. They can be homophobic. And they don't view it as shameful anymore. That comes from the top. Yeah, there is a pernicious effect, a kind of contagion that emanates from a Trump rally. Uh, and you think it's just mm -hmm. inside the building, but when that focuses on hatred yeah. and crowds cheer hatred and crowds cheer implicitly racist or implicitly misogynist or implicitly uh, nationalist messages, um, it, it, it infiltrates out into the street. And we've not had a situation quite like this. And I think the main point of this conversation, which I, I think has been a great one, and I'm grateful to all of you, is that as we look out to 2020, um, while most of us are focused at the one threat that 
is at the center of the news on a day-to-day basis, and that is the president and 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 his men and and the way the system um, is 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 dysfunctional at the moment. Uh, there are a host of other issues that are likely to come to our attention as we continue on in the run-up to the election. Um, and and it's really, really important to stay on top of them. We'll try to help you do that here uh, by having conversations like this again. Juliet, hope you will come back. Uh, you were great. Um, Definitely. Thank you for having me. No, no, you were wonderful. Uh, Rosa, we'll, uh, of course, see you again next week. And David, um, yep. uh, uh, you know, bye-bye, and we'll see you again next week. For more information on the things that we are doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Uh, or listen to our upcoming podcast this week. Uh, we not only uh, have uh, the regularly scheduled one, but we're going to do a special on the coronavirus with Lori Garrett, who's one of the leading uh, journalists and experts on the spread of contagious diseases. Uh, uh, you won't want to miss it. She's terrific, and 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 that'll be up uh, sometime late tomorrow. So join us for that podcast, for our Thursday podcast and everything else at the dsrnetwork.com. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Bye-bye.